That's what old people need to do. <laughs> a couple of years ago, I was walking up on the platform after the service when we, were help, when we used to have coffee out front, and I fell flat on my face. And that has just panicked me forever. You know, I didn't want to do that this morning. Well, it's wonderful to be here again. And as we were in the back room with the uh, worship team and, and praying, and something was said, I guess uh, Stephanie said, Barbara's going to preach this morning. And I'm like, oh, I thought I was going to speak this morning. I don't know. This is the only Baptist church I know that has slid a woman preacher in with no debate, no theological arguments or anything. So, hey, I'll take it. <laughs> uh, what I love to see as I look out around you is a lot of new faces. We're snowbirds, so if you don't know who on earth I am, we come here only in the wintertime. I mean, excuse me, the summertime. I get my seasons mixed up. And we go to Florida in the winter. We're very blessed to be able to do that. So it's good to be back this summer and to see a lot of new faces as well. I'm very delighted with that. Um, I've been a Christian since I was a teenager. I've walked a long time with God. And I love this song, All My Life You Have Been Faithful. And I'm here to tell you today that no matter how old you get, he never, never stops being faithful. And I want to share with you a story from when I was a child. We're going to talk about perspective today, the right perspective. Do you know we live our lives according to perspective all the time? Whether you're a child, well, we're all, we all were children at one point, whether you're a parent now or you're a sibling or a student or an employee, you have a certain perspective in that relationship. You know the difference between parents' and children's perspective. Certainly. <laughs> we know between an employee and employer, when an employee asks for a raise, he's thinking about his bottom line. When his employer says, I'm sorry, we can't do that, he's thinking about his bottom line. And so we, look, we come into our life situations with differing perspectives. When I was a kid, my dad was an artist, and I used to love to draw. And I one day drew a beautiful house, you know, the square house and the triangle roof. And I put little windows on it and a door. And then I put a sidewalk from the front of it, because our home had a sidewalk. And I showed it to my dad, and he said, that's very interesting, but it looks like a tree house. I said, what? He said, that's the trunk of the tree, and it's holding that house up. I said, no, that's a sidewalk. He said, well, let me teach you something about perspective. And he took me, and he took me into his studio, and he got out a ruler, and he said, when you draw a picture of a house, when you're looking at it, the lines in front go straight across both ways. But the lines on the side go this way as they move away from you. You see the slide, the vanishing point, the all-important vanishing point. Did you ever do that when you were a kid? I now filled my paper with pictures of things with great perspective. We know when there's no perspective in a picture, we can see it. It looks kind of flat. But when you have that perspective where everything leads to that vanishing point, I'm just glad that in our lives, Everything doesn't leave, lead to a vanishing point. It leads to God Almighty. And he's always there. And if we live our lives with the right perspective, our lives will appear beautiful with the Holy Spirit living within us. 
We're going to say two things. To, oh, I need to tell you the best joke I found about perspective. And you know, you got to understand, I'm still new to, well, not real new to computers, but the whole internet searches and all that. Kids do it much better than me. But I look to see if there are jokes about a certain topic. Oh, my goodness, are there jokes? And I spent I don't know how long reading jokes about perspective. But the best one I found, and it's kind of a sad perspective when you think about it, is go on board the Titanic back in the early 20th century. There were people on there who died. This was not a good event. But there was some living thing on that ship for whom it was a miracle. It was the lobsters in the cooler, in the cool water, in the galley. Just think about that for a minute. For the lobsters, they experienced a miracle. So sometimes in our lives, we need that miracle. It may not look like a miracle to somebody else, but for us it can be. So we're going to look at life now. Life now is kind of bumpy. Nobody ever said it would be easy, and I'm sure none of you have found your lives easy, especially your Christian life. Christian lives are not easy to live. We're in a world that crushes in on us and wants us to do things their way. So we need the right perspective to live our lives well, and we're going to look at two passages of Scripture this morning to see what the perspective is we have to have now. The first passage is found in Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 7. Look at it on the overhead. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. I want us to look at that phrase in verse 6. In the heavenly realms. Have you ever thought about the heavenly realms? In Florida this winter we were studying the epistle to the Ephesians written by Paul. And we came to this verse, and for me, as I was studying it, it kind of jumped off the page. And I thought to myself, even after all these years as a Christian, what on earth are the heavenly realms? <laughs> it's pretty important to know if we're going to say that's where we are. Scripture says that God, if you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and been saved by his grace, he has raised you up and seated you in heavenly realms with Christ Jesus. Did you ever think about that? We know we have a spiritual nature. It doesn't take much to talk about. You know, there are parts of us you can't see. Thank, thank goodness for that. Don't we say that a lot of times? It's a good thing you can't see everything inside of me or me and you. But we also can use our minds to go to invisible places. Not long ago, I had to have an MRI, and it was on my head, which wasn't very pleasant, because it's very loud if you've ever had an MRI. But as I lay there, I imagined, I kept my eyes closed. You don't want to see that tube. <laughs> and so I kept my eyes closed, and I imagined I was on a beach, lying there in the sun, and I could hear the ocean. I could almost hear the waves. 
You can imagine yourself anywhere. Music that carries you away. We say it transported me. So you understand what that is. But when was the last time you lived through a situation in your life, maybe a problem, maybe a fun thing, that you lived it being aware of being in the heavenly realms? That's the perspective we need to work toward. How bad can this problem be? Do you remember the first time you flew in an airplane? I do. I flew from Newark to Phoenix, clear across the country, and the skies were perfectly blue all the way across the country, and I sat with my nose plastered against the window, looking at all the stuff on the ground. It's fascinating. What a difference in perspective, isn't it? And I remember seeing in all the farms in the Midwest these circular fields. Have you ever seen that from the plains? All these circular fields. And I thought, I've ridden by farms. I've never seen a curved fence. What's with the circular fields? And again, years later, when we drove across country, I still looked at those farms to see if I could see the circles. You can't see them when you're right there on the ground. You need the perspective of being above them. And that's the difference it makes to sit in the heavenly realms and look at your problems. They will look entirely different. And why is that? Who's there with you? What's it say? God seated you with Christ. You can come to other passages of scripture that are gonna say, where is, where is Christ right now? He's seated at the right hand of God. Have you ever imagined that's where you are? That's past tense. God has raised us up. This isn't something we aspire to. It's something God has already given us. He says, you sit here in my presence and in Jesus' presence and look through my eyes at your problems and they're gonna disappear. They're gonna turn to nothing important. It's an amazing way to live our lives. And I challenge you to do that. I've had opportunities over my long life to live life from every perspective. I was a child, I was a parent, I was a, a wife, I've been an employee, I've been a church member, I've been a speaker. You look at things from different perspectives, but the major perspective that influences our behavior is whether we're living in the heavenly places. And God says, you're there. I put you there. Live as if that's where you are. Says God loved us. He made us alive. He raised us up. And he seated us with Jesus. Someone has written a book, a, man, a professor named Steve Seaman out at Asbury Seminary in Kentucky, wrote a book called The Unseen Real. And it just makes the point there are many things in life that are real that you can't see. I mean, in science class, you learned that a long time ago. Can you see the wind is probably the most basic thing. We see the effects of things, but we don't see the thing. Well, you know, you can't see the heavenly realms because they're spiritual. But our spirits can dwell there. Jesus' physical body is there, but our spiritual body goes there when we put our faith in Christ. 
Lots of unseen real things. Our feelings are unseen, but they're real. Our love, our thoughts, peace. Can you see that? No, but it's every bit as real. So I, my prayer for you this morning is as you leave here, you'll leave with the sure knowledge that it's a real thing that you're living in the heavenlies with Christ and with God. And what do we do about that then? Years ago, I, I read a book by Francis Schaeffer. It was called, How Then Should We Live? And it basically talked about basic Christian doctrines and said, well, if all of this is true, then how should we be living our lives? And we're going to go over to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. And there, it, this is Paul writing again, this time to the Colossian church. And he says, since then, you have been raised with Christ. Notice again, past tense. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. There's something to do about it. Set your heart on things above. Set your hearts on things above. Do you remember setting your heart on things? You set your heart on that new car when you were 17. Maybe you meet someone and you set your heart on, on me getting to know them better. You plan your wedding and you set your heart on that day. We know how to set our hearts. We're waiting for a baby when we set our hearts on waiting for that baby. Set your hearts on things above. Why? Because that's where Christ is and he's seated at the right hand of God. Well, that's all very fine and it's very ethereal and it's very spiritual. Set your minds on God. How do you do that? Set your mind on things above, not on earthly things. What do you think about all day? What occupies your thoughts? There are actually three passages of scripture, two of them written by Paul and one by the psalmist, that will tell us how we can go about doing that. Because it's not an easy thing. Just, oh, set your mind on God. Set your mind on God and you'll be fine. What's that mean? Well, it's very specific. Scripture tells us quite clearly. Philippians 4.8 talks about what we should set our minds on. Finally, brothers and sisters, and Paul says finally because before this, he said, rejoice in the Lord. Again, I'm going to say it, rejoice in the Lord. And let, don't be anxious about anything, but let your prayers rise to him with thanksgiving. And the peace of God will keep your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. And then he says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, you know what that is. We know what's true and false. Certainly in the world today, what is true has become kind of a rare commodity. <laughs> People follow all kinds of false ideas. But we have the truth, and where do we find it? We find it in God's Word. Now, I, you know, when I come up here, it's hard to come up here without my Bible in my hand, because it just seems if you're going to preach God's Word, you should have your Bible in your hands. But turning to the pages while you're up here is not fun. And besides, I need my notes and I need my water. So forgive me for not having a Bible with me, but I trust as you leave here today, you'll say, wow, everything she said really came out of the Word of God.
because that's my goal. So in Philippians, we think of whatever is true. We think of whatever is noble, there's a word. Whatever is right, whatever is pure, no trouble defining these words. Whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable. If anything is excellent or worthy of praise, think about such things. You know, when you're just getting to the end of your patience and you're ready to lash out either <laughs> at your computer <laughs> or, or at the nearest person, whether it be a, a sibling or a parent or a child or your husband or wife, think about what is lovely. Think about what is admirable. Keep your thoughts there. Take them away from the problem. Then there are some other verses. Let's look at 1 Timothy. And these may not be in the order, Frank. I think I'm... Anyway, 1 Timothy 6. Oh, they're both there, okay. Paul says in 1 Timothy, what should be the direction of our lives? All right, that's important. When you're in high school, I was talking this morning to this young man who's a senior this year, and he's got to make some plans. What's going to be the direction of his life? Maybe you've arrived at where your direction was. But I'm here to tell you that over the years, your direction is going to take a few changes. You're going to come to forks in the road. You may be well established in your job and with your family, but there are changes coming. For those of you who are parents, there's a change in your direction coming when your kids all move out. There's a change of direction coming when you retire. How do you set those directions in your life? How do you choose which way to go? And in uh, 1 Timothy, Paul says, flee from all of this. And what he just did before this verse was list all the sins, which I'm not going to bother listing for you today. You know them well. We live in a society that embraces many of them and it practices many of them. And it's a temptation for us as well. But we are to flee from that and pursue righteousness. When you're looking for direction in your life, one of the first questions you should ask is, what's the right thing before God to do? It's interesting about the Christian life. We almost always know what the right thing is, <laughs> don't we? Our problem isn't always knowing the right thing, <laughs> it's doing it. It's like, Lord, I know that, and I'm not doing it. And I remember when I was a young person, and they would advise you when you're considering your career or considering who you're going to marry, how do you find that? How do you find out who and what and where? And they said, well, if you know what God wants you to do today, and you're not doing it, don't expect God to tell you what to do tomorrow. Now, that's kind of harsh. But if you want to follow God's directions, you have to start with what's in front of you right now. And if you find you get impatient and angry all the time, and you say, oh, God, I want to know what you want me to do with my life. And he's up there saying, I want you to become patient and kind and loving. Then I'll tell you where you, want, where you should work, or who you should marry, or when you should change jobs, or when you should move, or where you should move. 
He'll be there with the directions if we're walking obedience. So you have to pursue righteousness, pursue godliness. The Gospels give us an example of godliness as we watch Jesus live and react and work among his disciples and the crowds. Faith, don't give up on what you believe. Don't let anybody fool you and say, oh, that's old fashioned. No, God is as true today as he was thousands of years ago, as true as he was to Adam and Eve, as true as he was to Abraham, as true as he was to Moses, and on and on through all the men of the Old Testament. God is true. Have faith in that. Don't give up. Love, there's the tough one, <laughs> to be loving in every circumstance. Well, what about that annoying neighbor? How do I do that? There are times that are gonna challenge you in that, but Jesus says, no, I'm there with you. You're sitting next to me. I'll whisper some hints in your ear. I'll tell you what to do. How about endurance? You're gonna need that in the years ahead. I can tell you that, you're gonna need endurance. You know, one of the fun, you know, people have talked for years about when a bunch of old people get together, you know what they talk about? They talk about all their medical visits and all their ailments. Did you ever hear that? Did you ever say that? Heaven knows I used to say it. Hey, you know I'm old, and guess what? When we get together, <laughs> what we talk about is our ailments and our doctor visits. Our days are filled with appointments with doctors. It's what we do. <laughs> it's kind of where we are. But, oh, where was I going with that? Endurance. You have to endure the changes that come in life. And you know, I have kids now who are all in their 50s, and I'm like, oh, how is that possible? Our youngest reached 50 this year. And they're all beginning to say, oh, wow, yesterday I was working in the garage, and I'm so sore today. Well, you know what my answer is? Just wait. <laughs> Just wait. <laughs> the best is yet to come. And gentleness, the way in which you relate to people. How gentle are you? Jesus was very gentle. I mean, when the woman taken in sin was brought to him, he didn't condemn her. He reached out to her. And he asked the others around them, who of you hasn't sinned? And then he said to her, go and sin no more. Your sins are forgiven. Jesus is one who forgives us gently, and he does. So, but it's not easy. Fight the good fight of faith. Sometimes it is a fight to hold on to your faith. I remember, I remember tough times, and I've spoken in church here a couple times before, and I've shared some of the deep waters I've gone through in my life in years past. And there were times when I wanted to give up on my faith. And you know what held on to me? Is when God put in my mind the thought, well, Barbara, where else are you going to go? Who are you going to turn to if you don't turn to me? God is the ultimate reality. He is the truth. There's nowhere else to go but to him. He's the loving, gentle, forgiving God who planned for our salvation before the beginning of the world because he knew what Adam and Eve were going to do. And he knew what we were going to do too. But he'd already forgiven me. All I had to do was come and say, thank you. I believe that, thank you. So 
fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses. We confess our faith to one another. That's one of the values of coming together for, for worship and at church. One of the things I miss in church, and over many years, I've seen different things come and go in church habits. I come from an age where we sang only hymns from the hymn book with an organ and a piano. I come from an age where we had a Sunday evening meeting and we had a Wednesday night prayer meeting. Those those days back then. But I also came from a day when we used to have something called testimony night. Or sometimes on Sunday nights, they'd have testimony time every week. You know what testimony time was? It was when you got up and said what God said to you that week. What did God say to me this week? What did God say to you this week? Actually, I'm very pleased that our Thursday morning Bible study took a different turn this summer. Rather than studying some curriculum, we decided together we would use the daily bread. And it usually is in the back. I think they're all gone now for this season. But it's a daily devotional. You can even go online and put in daily bread and it'll bring up today's reading. It has a scripture to read, has a little anecdote that kind of illustrates the scripture, and a little prayer to pray and a challenge. We all read that all week long. And you know what we do when we come together? We talk about how God spoke to us through those passages. And it's very encouraging to see, you know, God does speak to people. In this Bible study that I'm a part of in Florida, there was a woman who one day kind of interrupted somebody else talking and said, you know, I hear you ladies all the time talking about God told me this. And when God spoke to me, I never hear God speak to me. How do you do that? Well, you know, the other verse on our slide, Psalm 119, 105, where do we go to hear God's voice? In his word. Your word is a lamp for my feet, a light on my path. That's where we have to go to look for instruction. So that gives us a little bit about living in the heavenlies and what we do to keep that a reality in our lives. We keep it a reality by thinking those thoughts that were in Philippians, by doing those things in Timothy, pursuing righteousness and all the rest of those qualities. And we do it by getting into God's word because that's where you're going to get direction. And I know when I was a teenager and I belonged to a club called High BA. Anybody ever heard of High BA? Aha, Frank, has to be our generation. It was called High School Born Againers. And it was a club of high school kids. And we met every week. And one of the things they encouraged us to do was read our Bibles every day. And one of the things they said was, your day just won't go well if you don't read your Bible. Well, that's kind of true, but not entirely true. There are some days it doesn't get read. God is still there. God still speaks. But it's better if you start your day with Jesus. 
even all these years later, I was reading a devotional writer who had something online, and he said, I want to challenge us in the next three months to start with first word, last word. Give God the first word in your day and the last word before you go to bed. Go to his word first thing in the morning and end the day by going to God in prayer and looking at his word. First word, last word. I can tell you it's a blessing to do that. It really is a blessing to do that. Time spent in God's word is never wasted time. Never. And will he speak every time you read it? No. Because our minds are sometimes scattered and preoccupied and we're not concentrating. But he will show up frequently enough for you to know he's very real and he's really there. And he really inspired his word to meet your needs. Even after all these years of reading the word of God, I can come across passages that blow me away because they seem brand new. And this Ephesians, that Ephesians verse we first looked at, he raised us up and put us in heavenly realms. I was like, I don't think I've ever really thought about that. And yet in many ways, it has changed my perspective in these last months. And I find it a helpful thing to remember when things aren't going so well. Barbara, look at it through Jesus' eyes. Look at it through God's eyes. And it looks entirely different. So there's always something to learn that's new. I, I came across a quote not long ago. It said, practical Christian living is built on the foundation of theological truth. Now that's kind of, I didn't put that on the slide. But think about that, practical Christian living, which is the loving and the doing and the not losing your patience and witnessing to others and being noble and true and righteous, all that, what is it based on? Just because it's a good idea? No, it's based on truth. That that's what God is like and that's what he wants us to be like because he created us in his image. And we've managed to mess that up pretty bad over the centuries but we still bear his image and he wants us to be like him and like his son. Well, does, does your theology, what you believe about God, dictate or impact your everyday life? Are you dwelling in the heavenlies with Christ? That's the first part of perspective I wanna talk about. And for the last minutes we have today, I wanna to talk about a future, a future perspective. And that is the perspective of where we go when we die. Oh, look, this old person is coming. She's going to talk about heaven. How exciting. Because what do we think heaven is? Oh, it's kind of a spiritual place. And you kind of sit around on clouds and play those lutes, harps. Uh, maybe you get wings. Do you get a halo and wings like it? I don't know. Isn't that what heaven is? And what do you do all that? You praise God. You praise God all day, every day, all day. And we say, eh? <laughs> is that really what heaven is? But you know, the word of God is so rich and so full of descriptions of heaven. It doesn't come right out there and, and put it right out there for you to see. You've got to hunt for these things. But I read an amazing book this winter called Heaven by a man named Randy Alcorn, and I would recommend it to all of you. It's not just a little paperback thing. It's 400 pages long, 
And it's long because everything he says about heaven, he documents with scripture. He finds verses that do allude to it in some way. So for, for the future, we're going to talk about heaven. Scripture says a lot of things about heaven. It says there are three heavens. Did you know that? Paul says, I was raised up into the third heaven. What's that mean? I don't know. You know what? The Bible doesn't say another word about it anywhere else. But there must be a first and a second heaven if there's a third heaven. And I don't know which heaven is which. I won't even pr pretend to know that. But today we're going to talk about two heavens because the scripture is pretty clear that there's something kind of like an intermediate heaven and then there's a final heaven. I don't know how many of you knew Matt Woloski. Some of you are new. But for those who have been here for years, Matt Woloski was a presence in this church by the back door every Sunday morning. I, you know, I recall that the first time we came to this church, he greeted me with a hug. Anybody who has met him will remember, he's the man who gives you hugs. And he made me feel like I was the most valuable person to have walked through the door of the church that morning. He really loved his Lord. Well, he passed away just a couple of weeks ago. And I was privileged to go to his wake and to hear the testimonies of other people who were impacted by his life. But where is Matt Woloski today? Well, we know his body is in a grave down in East Hanover. But that isn't the only Matt Woloski. We are not just our bodies. And we know that. <laughs> we live so much of our lives in our minds. We know we're, we're not just a body. We are a group of feelings and thoughts and reactions and, and so forth and so on. So Matt is in this intermediate heaven, which the Bible has called paradise. Do you remember when Jesus was on the cross? And he turned to the thief who said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He acknowledged that Jesus was king. For, for the little bit of knowledge he had, he placed his faith in Jesus Christ. And Jesus answered to him, do you remember? Today, you'll be with me in paradise. Now, that criminal's body was taken off the cross, and it was buried somewhere, just as ours will be if, if the Lord tarries. Jesus, on the other hand, he was buried when he came down off the cross, but he rose again. And it's when we get our resurrected bodies that we will live in that final heaven. Now, what is that like? It's talked about scripture a lot, but just thinking about the intermediate heaven for a moment, what is it like? It says there's laughter, there's joy, because currently it says there's joy in heaven when a sinner rejoices. So whatever creatures are in the preliminary heaven, intermediate heaven, excuse me, do have emotions. So they have emotions. I bet Matt is grinning from ear to ear today with that smile of his that always seemed to be there. We also, when we are in this intermediate heaven, use our minds. There's another passage in the scripture, and I didn't put these on slides, Frank, because there are so many scriptures that I'm just going to refer to them as we finish up with this talk about the final heaven. 
But somebody said to God, when are you going to judge the world? So apparently those beings who are in heaven think. (laughs) They use their minds. And it gives a hint that maybe they know to a greater or lesser degree, we can't be sure, what's going on on Earth. They have some amount of knowledge of what's going on on Earth. Nothing is very clear about that in scripture. But everybody who has died in Christ are there in that preliminary heaven. Intermediate, I'm sorry, I'm calling it by the wrong name. Intermediate heaven. So, 2 Corinthians. Therefore, we are always confident and know that as long as we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we live by faith, not by sight, and my eyes aren't good for that. (laughs) We are convinced, I say, this is better, and we prefer to be away from the body and at home with the Lord. That's what we know about the first heaven. We're away from the body and at home with the Lord. Well, one thing I want to mention before we go forward to talk more about heaven, I do not pretend to know the theology of all the end times. Scripture tells us there's coming a time when Jesus returns and he will raise the dead from the graves and we'll get our bodies back if we've died already. Or if we're still alive when he comes, he'll just raise us up with him. So there's a resurrection coming. About all we know about the chronology of that is it's before we get to the final heaven. We will have physical bodies in the final heaven. It also, there's a time of millennium, a thousand years of Christ reigning. I don't know where that occurs. (laughs) The tribulation, I'm not sure where that fits. You can read theologians and they're going to put it here and they're going to put it there and somebody else is going to make it this way. So we can't know everything that's going in between. So we're just talking about the final heaven today. The rapture is when our bodies will be taken up from the grave and restored to us. The Old and the New Testament both have passages. We find it in Isaiah, we find it in 2 Peter, and we find it in Revelation that the final heaven is the new heavens and the new earth. And actually, um, in Isaiah, it is God speaking to Isaiah. He says, see, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be, nor will they come to mind. And in Revelation, John was given a vision, that sa- and he said, I saw the new heaven and the new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth were passed away. So we can know for sure. And even in 2 Peter, God revealed this to Peter when he wrote these letters. But in keeping with his promise, he's promised this, we look forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. The Bible says a lot about what won't be there. If we go over to Revelation, it tells us some things of what won't be there. It says, God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes. There shall be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There won't be any more pain, for the former things are passed away. But the one who sat on the throne says, I make all things new. What a wonderful promise. 
I make all things new. And then he said, write these words down. They're true and faithful. There was a song we sang, was it this morning? All my life you have been faithful. Amen, that's true. And for all eternity, he will be faithful. Well, while the Bible says a lot about won't be, what won't be there, no disabilities, no war, no anger, no jealousy, no separation from God, all those things will have passed away. But what will be there? We already see that God himself in Christ will be there, there in the heavenly realms where we're supposed to be living now. But what will it be like in heaven? The only glimpse we have really in one place is in Revelation where it talks about a new city, the holy city of Jerusalem, which is a cube. And I can't really describe it well, but you can read it for yourself in Revelation 21 and 22. It's a city. People live in a city. So we know people are going to be in that heaven. We know people need a place to live, and they'll be living in that city. But is that all there is? No, not if he says, I create a new earth. The best place to look to think about what the new earth might be like is to what we find in Genesis 1. When, when God finished creating the world, what did he say about it? It was good. It was good. And mankind was good. And when you've put your faith in Christ, you're restored to that goodness. You're restored to that perfect creation that God made. Now God's going to restore the earth. That word has been used throughout scripture. It says over, I think in Romans, that the earth is groaning for being restored. The earth struggles with this. Earth is affected by sin. Well, with the whole... Uh, mantra of climate change. We know that man does affect where we live. The sin of our lives has impacted the world. Besides, there weren't weeds before sin. Did you know that? Adam and Eve in the garden had all the garden to provide for their food needs, but God said after they sinned, now the ground will be cursed and you will labor hard. You will work hard just to get food for yourselves. <laughs> we all know that, especially when you get near the end of your life, you realize you work. <laughs> my, my grandkids are at the beginning of things at 23, and the two of them are trying to buy a house together. And one of my grandkids said to me on the phone the other day, Grandma, how, how did you and Grandpa get to where you are? You have a home in Florida, you have a home up here, you travel, you have such a good life. How did, you, how did that happen? <laughs> I said it pretty straightforward. I said, we worked hard. And that's what life is all about. This life here is working hard. God knew it would be. But don't forget the perspective you need on that. But anyway, back to this. What was in the old earth, the current earth we live in? There's stars, there's sky. There's clouds, there's mountains, there's oceans, on and on and on, vegetation to eat and to enjoy, animals. They were there at the first creation to rule over. And then you go further in the scriptures and you find out it says in the new earth, the lion will lie down with the lamb. And you know, some people kind of dismiss all, oh, that's just symbolic. That's just talking about the peace that God gives us. No, it's not. In the new earth, that's the way the kingdom, of, the animal kingdom will be. Someone has said, 
do our pets go to heaven? Well, I'm afraid to tell you that the fact that they don't have souls is, no, Ginger isn't going to heaven. He won't greet me there. But animals are in heaven. And who says you can't have a pet when you're in heaven? There's nothing that forbids that. There will be animals there. There'll be dogs and cats there. Maybe you can have a pet in heaven. Maybe that'll encourage you if you've lost a pet. Well, in heaven, we will have perfect physical bodies, which will eat and drink. Christ in his resurrected body ate, if you remember that. We will, have, we will be mental beings. We'll be learning things. We'll be solving problems. We'll be deliberating. We'll continue to live with a mind that is active. Jesus did after the resurrection. He walked and talked with his disciples and unfolded the scriptures to them. His mind was working. We'll be emotional. We relate to God and we'll relate to one another. The relationships you have here on this earth, if that other person knows Christ, your relationship is going to last forever. Isn't that a beautiful thought? That's, that's enough to make going to heaven sound like something I want to do today. When I think of most of our loved ones, and certainly all the ones older than us, are gone. And someday I'm going to see them all and relate again to them forever. And I think that with, you know, parent-child relationships, they never end. <laughs> In case you're thinking, oh, once the kids are out of the house, oh, that'd, be, that'd be really great. No, no, no. <laughs> when you get to be my age, it's like, when's my son going to call? <laughs> or why didn't my daughter answer my text? you still have a desire to be in relationship with those kids. Well, in heaven, I'll have all the years and eons of relationship time with my family that I would ever need. How about spiritual beings? Well, we've already said, when you get to heaven, you worship and praise God. So that is part of it. Well, I'm not going to labor this, but I just want to take five minutes to mention a few very practical things, earthly things, because we'd be living on a new earth. Jesus said, I go to prepare a place for you. A place is physical. A place is where a physical body can stand and be. And as a teenager, we learned a chorus. I have a mansion just over the hilltop. Any of you know that? I have a mansion just over the hilltop. That's from John 14, where Jesus said, in my father's house are many mansions. I don't know about you, but I've reserved a place on, on water. I want to be on the ocean. Even a lake will do. But anyway, we will have houses in heaven of some sort or other. I don't know what they're going to look like. The Bible doesn't tell us that. But we will have to have a place to live. We will also work. Adam and Eve worked before the fall. They had to feed themselves. Adam had to name all the animals. There's a job. <laughs> and, and tend to the animals. He was there to subdue the earth, to care for all of creation. So it won't be that we don't work, but it'll be meaningful work. It won't be frustrating work. People won't be giving you trouble in your jobs. It'll be a different kind of work. We'll think. Adam had to think to name those animals. We'll recognize each other. Remember the transfiguration? 
they recognized Moses and Elijah. We'll recognize all the saints of the Old Testament. We will know each other. Paul says in Corinthians, we will know as we are known. We will have self-knowledge and we'll know everybody else. How about Psalm 1611 says, at your right hand, God's right hand, are pleasures forevermore. Did you ever think you're going to enjoy yourself in heaven? God loves it when we have a good time. Did you ever notice how often Jesus went to dinner at people's houses? He loved dinner parties. He went to Zacchaeus' house. He went to Matthew's house. He went to Mary and Martha's house. He spent most of the Gospels eating dinner at people's houses. He loves that. And he loves it when we gather and share meals together and enjoy one another's company. And we will do that forever, which is wonderful. And there'll be no frustrations. Luke says, blessed are those who hunger and thirst, for they will be satisfied. And Psalm 17 says, I will be satisfied when I see his face. In heaven is pure satisfaction. None of your wants will ever be frustrated. And none of your wants will ever be impure or unrighteous. They will be the things God desires for you. God gives you the desires of your heart. People have, have tried to interpret that two different ways. Does that mean he gives you what you want? Or does that mean he gives you the desires? He gives you the right desires. I don't know. I'll leave that up to you. That's why the word is so fascinating. Could God use it in so many ways? We'll have opportunities. God's, Jesus said, if you're faithful here, I'll give you more to do. <laughs> I'll give you more responsibilities. We're going to have opportunities there. We will rest. I don't know whether these physical, uh, raised, you know, resurrected bodies really need to rest, but it's possible. Adam and Eve, when they were perfect, probably rested at the end of, and besides, at the end of six days, what did God do? He rested. So there may be a place for rest. And actually, Revelation says, we will rest from our labors here. We will rule and reign. That may be the work, Paul says in Timothy. We will rule and reign over the world with Christ. We'll live in community, the city of God. And you know, I did say already we would eat. Well, I gave you all a list of scriptures today. I've referred to many of them today. If you want to check me out, go home and look them up. <laughs> because you'll find throughout the words, particularly in the Old Testament and the prophets, if you come across a prophecy that says something that makes no sense to you, and you say, well, that hasn't happened, it's coming. It's coming. I'm going to leave you last with a story. There was a woman who was getting near death, and she called for her pastor, and she said to her pastor, when I'm buried, pastor, be sure that my family gives the undertaker a fork to put in my hand in the casket. And the pastor said, a fork in your hand? What for? She said, well, let me tell you a story. She said, when I was a child and we would go to dinner at grandma's house, she would clear the table away after we had the main meal. Dessert was coming. She'd clear the plates away, and she'd always say, hold on to your forks. The best is yet to come. And that's what we got to remember today. Hold on to your forks. 
the best is yet to come.